0: hi this is andrew and this is keynote the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers hello everybody it is sunday october october the 9th 2022 sundays was In a pre-capitalist age, perhaps the day where nothing happened, but America never sleeps. And there's always change every day of the week, including weekends, even Sunday. It's all, of course, associated with the I-word. We've done many shows on the I-word. Innovation. The action, if you look it up online, the action or process of innovating. But what is innovating? It means a, a new idea, a method or device. Um, Innovation, I found another definition, is the practical implementation of ideas that result in the introduction of new goods or services, or improvement in offering goods or services. We tend to think of innovation as a good thing in the 2020s. We've done so many shows on it, in lots of different ways of thinking about innovation. One with a historian of antiquity of what the ancient Greeks can teach us about innovation. Another with somebody who argues that the great source of today's innovation are 25 million of the world's refugees. Another argument suggesting that Silicon Valley, supposedly the home of innovation in America, can learn a lot about it from both Denver and Denmark. And of course, there's the idea that anyone who's against innovation is And we've done many shows on that, including some people who argue that big tech companies like Google and Facebook and IBM and Microsoft, they're the ones stopping innovation. So we are focusing once again on innovation today, and particularly on something that my author, my guest today, describes as the innovation mindset, eight essential steps to transform any industry. Uh, The name of my guest is Lorraine H. Marchand, and she's joining us from her home just outside Philadelphia. She teaches at Columbia Law Business School. Uh, Lorraine, before we start talking specifically about your book, The Innovation Mindset, what in your view is so great about innovation? Firstly, how would you define it? I mean, I looked it up online. And secondly, what's so great about it?
1: Well, Andrew, I think that the word innovation is uh, a more modern term, as you pointed out before we had the word innovation, which as you rightly cite, involves the development of new ideas, the development of products and services that have some sort of commercial potential. And to me, there's another piece on that. It's around being able to affect human good, make society culture better. I think there has to be a betterment of the state of humanity that comes from innovation. But prior to that modern world word, we had the focus on invention, And invention was the bastion of research labs and large corporations, such as Bell Labs at the time, the precursor of telecom as we know it today, IBM, which you referenced in your early remarks. And and this was the idea of continuing to tweak and improve uh, the product, the technology, being able to protect it for commercial value and gain and being able to stave off competitors. And so I think as we've switched to more of a distributed model of innovating, so certainly some of the icons like Jobs and Gates and others, it's hard to talk about innovation without talking about some of the icons that have really created more i all term democratization of the ability to develop new ideas, to bring those new ideas to market, to have commercial value from those new ideas. We've we've transitioned from that idea of invention in a research setting to invention, which really is an activity, a, a business activity that should be available to all, is what I personally believe.
0: The democratization, meaning you mean in the past that people didn't have access to it and now they do or they should?
1: I think they have not had access to it in the past. And I think increasingly people do have more access to it. And I hope that that will continue to permeate all genders, all ethnicities, people from all walks, having the ability to have their ideas, their dreams come true, uh, be able to, to test them and take them to market. And... Certainly if we look at history, it ha- in- invention and innovation has not been available to all. And a big reason that I wanted to make this book so accessible with these eight steps, which are based on my own experience, observations, teaching, coaching different companies and, and innovators is because I really do want to demystify it, break it down. And if you follow these steps, you too can at least determine whether your big idea has the potential for commercial viability.
0: Lorraine, we also did a show recently with the author of an interesting history of venture capital, Sebastian Malaby, uh, on how, at least in his mind, Silicon Valley is shaping uh, innovation through venture capital. Um, What's your view on the role of venture capital in the innovation economy? You mentioned, jobs and gates, neither of them really depended on on venture investment, although they did to a little extent. Um, Today, of course, even even the most uh, radical innovators, the Zuckerbergs of the world, rely on venture capital.
1: Well, capital raising has certainly become uh, an important component of moving innovations into the marketplace, whether that's through VCs or strategic corporation types of relationships, that's certainly true. And I think the one thing that innovators have to be mindful of is one of the sections of my book is really talking about if you want to commercialize your idea, you have to be solving a problem that a customer wants to pay to have solved. And that's a really important demarcation of innovating for the commercial marketplace and innovating with an eye toward being able to raise venture capital. And one of the first things that a VC is going to look at is, is this a big problem? Is it significant to a large portion of the population, or are there significant revenues that are going to be gleaned from it? And is there somebody on the other side of it, a decision maker, who's willing to pay in order to have this problem solved? So I do think that that makes for two sides of the coin in terms of the innovation process, the innovator with the idea, trying to find a customer who is willing to pay for it, and the VC also brings that, that interest. One does have to be aware that VCs, like so many other entities, are going to follow a little bit of a a herd mentality. So there's definitely this idea that certain things can be very fashionable. Everybody's going to be looking for the next unicorn, the next disruption. While I think that is certainly occurs... Uh, It's a more rare form of innovation. I believe serendipity, the big hunt, I call them in the book. Those are not necessarily the kind of innovation that you or I or some of your listeners might be making available to them. But I don't think that should dissuade people. I think if you have curiosity If you have a passion for problem solving, if you embrace change, and if you're a student of observation and that there are problems around you that you see that you want to solve, you can do incremental innovation, process innovation, innovation that's maybe a little bit more like optimization, and I still believe that you can raise capital and support for that type of innovation. So we don't all have to be the next uh, Gates or jobs or uh, within the uh, the Silicon Valley model.
0: So you, your book is called The Innovation Mindset. Um, does that mean uh, that it really requires or what you're trying to do in your book is teach a frame of mind? Is this the what you call the aha moment or is it an attempt to suggest to people that if you really wanna be an innovator, you've gotta get beyond? simply brainstorming and thinking you've come up with something remarkably innovative or original?
1: I Again, this idea of making innovation more accessible uh, to everybody means that I would like to debunk the concept that innovation is only the Eureka aha moment. Even Edison had a thousand tries at the light bulb before he got it right. And so innovation takes a lot. It takes discipline. It takes a lot of hard work. You really have to know who you're innovating for. And again, this idea of who is your customer? Are they willing to pay to have this problem solved is really part and parcel of what I think is the heart of being successful and effective at innovation. We can certainly come up with big ideas, but if at the end of the day, we're not solving a problem that somebody cares about, that somebody wants to pay to have solved, then we might not be as effective from a commercial standpoint, And I'll just note that I don't believe that pay is always a financial transaction. When I go through my solutioning, and I believe in the law of three solutions to every problem that you might identify as you're determining the solution that you want to take to market, we have to recognize that the status quo is a default, but that's also a choice. So we can choose not to change the way we're doing something. And so when we're analyzing our customers, we have to really understand the way they do work currently, where their pain points are, and are they motivated to change something about why they're working. So we've really got to get very close to the customer in this process and understand the problem that they're experiencing and the one that we want to solve and I believe that, that uh, Zuckerberg, you mentioned Zuckerberg, and Steve Jobs uh, were both very much students of doing voice of the customer kinds of research.
0: You teach at Columbia Business School, Lorraine. I mean, isn't this just obvious? What, why do you need to write a book about it? I mean, none of this is surprising. You have to satisfy your client. Uh, there needs to be a market for your product. W- w- why, why write about this? Isn't it obvious?
1: Well, you know, when I was starting out, so I've been um, in the world of creativity and problem solving uh, since I was about 13 years old and brought my first product to market with the help of my father. And I've been an innovator in large corporations, so maybe you would call me an entrepreneur in companies such as Bristol-Myers Squibb. And, IBM and the National Institutes of Health early in my career. And I've also launched or co-founded four startups in the uh, diagnostic, uh, the device and the therapeutic space. And when I had some of my first forays as an independent entrepreneur startup, it took me about a year to learn everything that I needed to learn, to talk to the right people, to figure out how the world of VC worked. Um, to figure out how to do the right kind of customer research. And so I, I wrote a book that I wished had existed when I was going through that experience. And when I was going through that experience, I probably made just about every mistake in the book. And so my goal in putting this together and taking... The obvious and making it simple to follow, but putting it all in one place, step by step, is to take out the, the risk, to take out the uncertainty, and to really help accelerate your path to market. Everybody's going to help. take
0: the risk out of innovation. The very definition of innovation requires risk, it requires you to lose something, and it requires for everyone's success. There are many hundreds of failures you 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 mentioned you're teaching this in business school and you're presenting this as a kind of business school book with eight essential steps uh you also mentioned steve jobs and mark zuckerberg and bill gates they all not only did they not go to business school they dropped out of undergraduate all three of them um surely innovators are born they're not taught you can't teach the great innovators can you
1: Well, I believe that it's a bit of nature and nurture, so I think that we are born with a certain amount of creativity, and for some of us that is fostered, and uh, we find mentors along the way that encourage us or at least don't dissuade us. And I think that as we go through school, it's probably a good thing that those gentlemen did drop out um, because oftentimes you find that you go through school, the focus is on always having the answers. And so we start to drift further and further away from our innate curiosity from our love and comfort with experimentation. And by the time we get into the business world, we can feel as though we've been so shaped and molded and conformed to have all of the answers that we've lost some of that innovation mindset. But I believe- Uh, So are you
0: suggesting the people, if you really wanna be an innovator, you, you shouldn't go to business school?
1: Not at all. I'm suggesting that if you want to improve your business Innovation, acumen, that you absolutely can. And one of the first things that you need to do is get back to the art of observation. You know, so many of us go through our day to day a little bit on autopilot, forgetting to look around and see that the problems that we practically stumble over, whether they're at work or school or in our neighborhoods. And one of the things that I say to corporate executives as well as startups who say, you know what? I'd like to be more innovative. I just, I know I'm not a Jobs. I know I'm not a Zuckerberg. Can I be innovative at all? And I say, absolutely, yes, you can. But you do have to be focused on it. You have to practice it. It's like a muscle, right? If you were starting out running for the first time, you would probably maybe only go a half a mile. But with practice, you can be more observant. You can make yourself a student of becoming more innovative And I absolutely believe that. Like so many other things, you have to be aware of it and you have to practice it. And one of the things that I suggest is observe three problems every day, write them in your journal. It's going to make you much more tuned in with what's going on around you. And I believe that at the end of two weeks, as you look back through that journal, you will possibly find some ideas, some problems that you want to solve that are worth solving, and that that can be where you start to foment change. And then from the business perspective, Certainly an MBA is a great degree. I have one from Columbia myself and it teaches us a lot in terms of how the financial markets work and how VCs work and all of those skills that you need. And you do need skills as an innovator as well. So that also needs to be taught, how you navigate the financial markets, how you pitch VCs, how you think about the return on investment of your innovation. So I think those are all really important things that need to be juxtaposed with cultivating that mindset mindset, which again, I do believe is is, uh, part nature, part nurture. Uh,
0: Lorraine, we had uh, uh, Jason Pfeiffer, you're probably familiar with his work. He's the editor of Entrepreneur Magazine. He has a new book out, Build for Tomorrow, an Action Plan for Embracing Change, Adapting Fast and Future-Proofing Your Career, he doesn't use the I word in his title, but it's all about innovation. But rather than innovating business, he talks about innovating the self. Is your theory, your argument for the innovation mindset, is it really about making oneself future proof?
1: Well, that's the so any kind of innovation is obviously going to start with the individual, uh, the individual as innovator. So I think that it certainly starts with this observation of your own level of curiosity, this idea of being more observant about problems, being more resilient about change and being able to adapt to change. I think from an organizational perspective, one also needs to be a leader of change, a leader of innovation. So one needs to model that to their teams, whether it's in a large corporation or in a startup. You have to create an environment where experimentation, and you mentioned the failure world, or that you know there is always going to be risk. I do believe that you can de-risk innovation on a number of different parameters. But that aside, I do think that innovators need to be an environment where they can feel comfortable. I don't like to use the word fail. I say that if you're constantly pivoting, then you're always learning. And if you're learning, you're moving forward, maybe a certain direction. uh,
0: Lorraine, there's a lot of jargon here. Constantly pivoting means failure. It's the F word. And a lot, most people fail and most people don't enjoy failing. There's a cult of failure in Silicon Valley, uh, peddled by highly successful people but let's face it most people aren't very good at innovation and 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 they fail that's the reality that's the truth isn't it
1: no i don't think so at all i think that if you so so when i say the word pivot i'm not trying to create a euphemism around the word failure what i'm saying is that there is a way that you can study your environment you can look at the market dynamics You can stay very close to the customer just once, but constantly getting customer feedback. If you're in a regulatory environment, you can look at regulatory and policy constraints and you pivot before you fail, right? You move and change direction before you fail. There are a lot of brands, PayPal for example, and YouTube and others that would have failed if they hadn't seen that the direction that they were heading in wasn't exactly going to work out. And if they hadn't pivoted in order to get more aligned with what the customer and the market. Was you you mentioned like-
0: YouTube and and PayPal. Uh, they're both companies, actually. I know quite well. W- what exactly did they do? What were they facing? And, and how are they models for innovation and for the innovation mindset? And which which individuals within PayPal and, and YouTube do you particularly credit with the reinvention of these companies?
1: Well, I think that um, you know, for, for both of them, you know certainly Spencer Raskoff was, uh, was highly involved. I mean, uh, Elon Musk, of course, was highly involved in, uh, in PayPal. And I think that you know as that went out as a financial uh, transaction type of company, but it wasn't addressing the market. It wasn't really being able to be attractive to customers. And so staying close to the customers, having those conversations, moving in a different direction, and they were able to find unmet need, which was a, a financial transaction mechanism that allowed individuals to, uh, to exchange uh, currency. So I think that, that that was an innovative service. It was an innovative way of doing something. And I believe that innovation can also be new ways of doing things, new ways of working.
0: Well, that goes without saying, what about YouTube?
1: Well, so YouTube started out, as, as you know, uh, as a, a video, uh, sort of a, a fun type of video company, exchanging fun videos, maybe a little bit like an Instagram today. You know, and again, it wasn't really hitting its mark, wasn't really attracting a lot of customers. But this idea of, of allowing people to create videos and share them on the platform you know, that really took off. And as they saw the market responding and reacting to that, you know, obviously very successful in terms of the way that they... It's
0: interesting you bring up YouTube, but a lot of people argue that the only reason YouTube was successful is they broke the law. They essentially turned a blind eye to piracy. Is there any truth? to? Steve Jobs love the idea of piracy, even within Apple, when he created innovative groups to kind of... Uh, challenge the status quo. we allowed them or encouraged them to fly pirate flags from their building. Uh, should innovators break the law or at least come close to breaking the law, Lorraine?
1: Well, I guess that's that's a very good question and uh, it's uh, never obviously it's, it's always a risk to break the law. And I guess one of the things that you have to evaluate is, who's going to get hurt and how badly are they going to get hurt? And are you really breaking a law that makes sense? Or are you challenging the the status quo? And are you creating a new way of doing things in challenging the status quo? So I'm not here to defend anybody that was involved in piracy or anything like that. But I do think that innovators have to be risk takers, as we said at the beginning of the hour, and they do have to challenge the status quo. And that's how we find out whether there are new ways of of trying to approach things. So I, I think innovators have to be willing to take some risks.
0: Yeah, again, I think that certainly goes without saying. Your book is The Innovation Mindset, Eight Essential Steps to Transform Any Industry. Innovators though, Lorraine, as you know, don't have time for eight steps. Just give me one. What's the key step here? If there's just one, if the, if people only have the chance, I know you have eight and you lay them out in the book and in and, and articles you've written, but if there's just one step, one thing that will enable it, the innovation mindset, what is it?
1: I think that it has to start with the correct problem, identification. That's where it all begins. And I have seen, as as I'm sure you have, since you're very conversant with so much innovation, um, I would say 98% of the time, I see people rush to create a solution, and then they're looking for a problem to solve. And I've been a victim of that kind of innovation myself. And I call it, uh, you know, the field of dreams, build it and they will come. And I do not believe that that is is the right way to innovate. I think that that leads to a lot of failure. You talked about the F word. So if any type of innovation leads to the F word, it would be the kind where we start with the solution and then hope that we're gonna find a problem to solve. And then a customer who's willing to pay for it. So if we start with the problem, if we observe it, if we have evidence of it, we do the right kind of research and we're able to codify it and create a clear statement, which is all outlined in the book, that first step is really critical. And I find, even when I'm teaching this, very, very hard to, for people to get their mind around this. Everybody wants to jump jump to a solution. So if you think about those eight laws, I probably spend half of my course focused on the problem and then the solution that fits it, because it's just human nature to want to solve problems and, you know, jump to the solution to take to market. Right. So, so
0: your your first law or your first point in the book, uh, your your first step is every innovation must solve a customer problem. I'm, I'm curious, you're, you, you, I'm not sure if you still are, but you were general manager at IBM Watson Health and, and, and you've spent your, your corporate life in the health services area, Bristol Myers Squibb uh, and so on and so forth. Um, the health industry or the health system in America is as rotten as, as anything in the country. How would you innovate that? I mean, what, why, are people, why are people banging their head against the wall when it comes to innovating healthcare in America? Why is it such a rotten system, so profoundly dysfunctional?
1: Why would you call the healthcare system rotten? What part of it is rotten to you?
0: Well... We've done so many shows on the unhappiness of doctors, the unhappiness of patients, the waste, the corruption. Um, perhaps that's a, a subject for another show, but you believe it works pretty well, the American health system? It's expensive, um, it's distrusted, the healthcare providers make huge profit. Uh, drugs, pharmaceuticals are uh, absurdly expensive. So seems to me as it, 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 it's it's a highly conservative industry. And we've talked to many doctors who are no great fans of the system either, but you believe it works well, it, it suits innovation?
1: I think that while the healthcare system can certainly been, be improved, I think it has absolutely been a bastion for innovation, um, and I think that we really saw the healthcare system rise. Even though we all wish that COVID hadn't occurred, uh, um, amazing innovations. For example, really. Uh, led to the advent of telehealth as we know it today. And even though those numbers are declining, I think that was a very innovative thing that happened. I think the collaboration between Medtronic and Tesla being able to create the mobile ventilators that could get out to senior centers, I think that was a great innovation. Um, I think the speed at which the vaccines came to market and the flexibility of the FDA in order to bring those vaccines to market and put everybody in a living actual clinical trial, I think that was innovative in, in itself. Before that, the the shortest time it had been to bring a vaccine to market had been the mumps vaccine, 25 years prior, and it took four years, and that was considered absolutely record speed. If you look at electronic medical records, technology, platforms, interoperability, the use of real-world data and AI in order to detect cancers earlier, match people for precision therapeutics, I am very proud of my industry, and I think it is Full of innovation. And I think despite the fact that it's conservative and regulatory in nature, and by the way, it has to operate with a focus on not harming the patient, right? First, do no harm. If you talk to a lot of doctors, that's their credo. That's why the healthcare system is so tough because the first thing that we have to do is protect the safety and health of the patients. And so everything that we do has to go through that threshold first. And I beg any other industry to tell me how they would operate in a system that is run similar to the healthcare system, where you have patients that are vulnerable and we need to consider their needs first.
0: Well, well said. Uh, I think you have a case. be interesting to get you on a show with some, of the, some many guests who are much more critical of the system. Um, Lorraine, you're obviously a, a woman, that goes without saying. We've done a number of shows on female innovation and female entrepreneurs. One, for example, with Christy hunter Ascott, the uh, author of Begin Boldly, How Women Can Reimagine Risk, Embrace Uncertainty, and Launch a Brilliant Career. In other words, How Women Can Be Innovators. We also did another show with uh, For well, w- w- one uh, one author who's a uh, a part of a, a, a foursome of, of, of uh, authors uh, on um, a book called the No Club, putting a stop to women's dead end work. Um, do you think that the the current system you, you mentioned before your hope and belief in the democratization of innovation? Do you think the system is um, weighted? against women
1: you opened up by talking about the role of venture capital and innovation and we talked about that uh codependency that partnership and if we look at the number of venture capital partners uh, at least in the us and it's pretty similar across europe only about three percent of them are women who are partners in vcs If we look at the number of women founded companies that get venture capital, it's also about 3%. So an interesting correlation or corroboration between the number of women venture capitalists and the number of women founded companies garnering venture capital funding. So I believe that if we can penetrate both the VC world, very critical, as well as entrepreneurship and innovation, with more women, then that will cause the rising tide that will create more opportunity for women. I don't believe that the system is purposefully weighted against women at all. I think there are a lot of reasons why innovation isn't necessarily a career path that many women take reasons around family and choice and risks and all the sort of things that we could get into. But I think that more and more women want to control their careers. They want to control their futures. They want to have more economic freedom. And I think that innovating and being an entrepreneur gives women a chance to try things that otherwise they wouldn't have tried. It gives them control over their future. It gives them more economic freedom and stability. So I'd like to see women, people of color, everybody have exciting and happy careers. And I want to see them have economic freedom and stability. So that's where I'm coming from.
0: I mean, I I think a lot of that goes without saying, if there's one thing then that needs to change in terms of the increasing, and I use your word, democratization of the innovation economy, what does it need to be?
1: Well, first of all, we need a true infrastructure. You know, one of the things that I notice, um, particularly because I do work with a lot of women and, and, and encouraging them and so forth, is that we, we really don't have an innovation infrastructure ecosystem that people can depend on. There's a conference here, a course there, a venture capitalist over here, um, you know, the ways that I spend a year trying to get all of the information. And even though that you think it's all very obvious, when it comes to implementing it, it's not all very obvious, so you might be you might be um, misunderstanding just how easy it is to innovate and to implement your innovation. Are you
0: suggesting there's more government involvement? I, perhaps the Chinese model versus the American model.
1: I don't know if I believe that it's the Chinese model or well, the um,
0: Singaporean I, model of of the well, of, of state investment and commitment to what well, you call the ecosystem think, of innovation. I
1: think, yeah, I think that there's a role for that. I think it's probably a you know more of a public, private, integrated type of model. But yeah, we need, and and the ecosystem or the infrastructure that I'm talking about is we just spoke about capital, right? So there needs to be more equity in terms of access to capital, more knowledge about how to access capital. There really is not enough education and knowledge and just practical training on how to access capital. We need more STEM education. We need more women to be able to feel comfortable and have careers in STEM. There's a lot that's been written around why it's difficult for women's STEM careers and people of color. And we also need, uh, you know, improved networking. I think that we find that for a lot of different reasons, you know, social constructs, etc. it might be that women don't feel as comfortable networking with attorneys and accountants and investors and the kinds of individuals that you need to network with in order to really have the kind of personal ecosystem in order to make your innovation or your company thrive. and so, i think those are at least three components of the infrastructure that i'd like to see built as a platform in order to help foment change and, and help more women and, and others innovate.
0: Final question, uh, Lorraine. You've been involved with IBM and they poured billions of dollars into their Watson platform for artificial intelligence. Um, can smart machines innovate? Is there gonna be a role for humans in the innovation economy as AI becomes more and more dominant and ubiquitous?
1: Well, I personally think that AI is still in its infancy. I think we've only scratched the surface in terms of what AI can do. I mean, it's only as good as the data that we feed into it and the algorithms and the coding that humans uh, still have to be behind. So I absolutely see that there be <coughs> humans uh, in the future economy, whether it is uh, more, uh, you know, led by, or if, even though there might be more reliance on AI, more reliance on robots. We still need humans to do all of the work to do that coding and also to interpret, to derive the insights, to know how to take those insights and use a little bit of intuitiveness in order to make decisions. So I think that humans will be more capable of making good decisions and hopefully that AI will be more of an enabler for their innovative talents and skills.
0: Well, if there is an argument for human innovation, it's Lorraine H. Marshall, both as a person, a professor, an innovator within large companies, and indeed a writer. Um, she has a new book out, The Innovation Mindset: uh, eight Essential Steps to transform any industry. And if you' only can got time for one of them, um, it's about recognizing what the client needs. Wise words might seem obvious, but as Lorraine has suggested, Sometimes the most uh, obvious things are the least understood. Congratulations, Lorraine, then, on the new book. What else are you reading these days? Do you have any fun? I hope you don't only read about innovation.
1: <laughs> well, you know, I I, I love um, I love history, and uh, I just finished the book called *The Personal Librarian* by uh, Marie Benedict and uh, a co-author. And I really like Marie Benedict. She wrote a fabulous book about Hedy, Hedy Lamar, uh, who I also consider an innovator. If uh, she did some of the work on the uh, naval sonar system in World War II, and even though the Navy didn't take her up on the innovation at the time, later they developed it. It was a precursor to GPS and Wi Fi. So Marie also took her hand at looking at the personal librarian, the, uh, the librarian of J.P. Morgan, uh, a fascinating story about a woman of color who actually was able to hide her color in order to operate in the white society and, and be in a prestigious position as the librarian of JP Morgan. And she was a fabulous art curator, really brilliant and innovative in her own way. So I really enjoyed that. And then um, I recently finished uh, Michael B. Oren's book, um, The Six-Day War. I guess you wouldn't put that on the fun list. But Mm. uh, I think the Middle East is fascinating. And the more we can read about the culture, the interrelationships, the policies. So I found that one interesting as well. So I'm sorry, Andrew, but I do like history. And uh, I like to learn. So uh, those those are my two.